Hey, hey, Freedom Pack family. Today, we are back with episode 39. What a journey it's been so far. So before we dive into today's episode, I just want to say that the feedback from our audience for the productivity planners has been insane. So when we partner with Intelligent Change, I just couldn't believe that this amazing productivity planner that had tools like prioritization, tips from world-class performers like Tim Ferriss, flow hacks, motivational quotes on every page. It was beautiful. It was practically designed. And it was just seemed like it was getting so little attention. It's helped me personally so much. And in the pursuit of my goals, it's basically become like a best friend for me. And it fills me with so much joy knowing that you guys are loving it too. So if you want to grab one or check it out, there'll be a link below for Intelligent Change. Uh, I'm going to be grabbing one of the uh, five-minute journals soon. So I will let you guys know how I get on with that. And whilst we're on the subject of productivity, as you guys know, I've was working on a productivity guide for a couple months and I've found eight of the best productivity hacks, which are all research backed, which I tried out myself and I wanted to give them for you guys to try. So you can download that below. It'll be com- completely for free, of course. So just head to Freedom Pact dot co dot uk forward slash productive uh that is freedompact.co.uk forward slash productive and you can claim your guide there so today is episode 39 and on today's episode we are delighted to speak to annie duke annie is an expert in cognitive psychology Annie earned a double major in psych and English before she then pursued a doctorate in cognitive linguistics. Back in 1998, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship. But all of these academic achievements, they were just lining Annie up for a path that she could never have expected. When Annie became unexpectedly sick and unable to work, Annie took up playing poker. So with all of her previous academic experiences of psychology, statistics, probability, Annie excelled in this field and went on to win the 2004 World Series of Poker. And Annie won her bracelet just one month later. So Annie is a World Series of Poker champion. It's just just crazy. You know, what an incredible feat. So Annie has also authored the best-selling book, Thinking in Bets, which is a book about making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. That is what we are going to speak about with Annie today, all about strategic decision-making. It's a pretty wide-ranging conversation, so I highly recommend listening to the full thing. It is extraordinarily informative you guys will definitely get some value. There's a lot of practical tips which you can take away, which you can start applying today. So, without any further ado, Annie Duke, 
Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Annie, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, you, thanks for having me. <laughs> it is an absolute pleasure. So, just for, say, context purposes, could you just give us some background into the journey that has led you to write in such an unbelievably useful book? It is your latest one, which is called Thinking in Bets. So, my path is a little bit long and winding. It's like... Uh, there's a lot of luck that intervenes that creates this kind of interesting uh, kind of collision of experiences that leads to the writing of this book. So I started off my adult life at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was studying cognitive science. Um, And in cognitive psychology in particular, which is what I was in, um, you're really studying, like, how does a human being interact with the world and process the information that, you know, the, the human being encounters. So, you know, a lot of thinking about, for example, learning. Um, so I'm doing that, and I go through five years there, and my full intention is to become a professor. This is what I think I'm going to do. I think I'm going to, you know, have a lab and, um, you know, do the academic thing. So that's what I'm thinking. Um, but during the last bit of graduate school, I was, I was kind of suffering with a a stomach issue, like an illness, and I thought, well, you know, I'll go and I'll do all of my job talks, and then, you know, I was sort of thinking that I would figure out, you know, how to deal with this illness while I was going through the process, Um, but right kind of in the middle of my last year, I actually, the illness became very acute. I ended up in the hospital for two weeks, and it happened to be right when I was supposed to be going out to do all of my job talks. Um, so I had to postpone all of those and then I needed time to recuperate cause I was pretty sick. Um, and so the idea was, okay, I'm going to take a year off and then I'll finish and then I'll go out and become a professor. And it was during that year that I just found out that I needed money. And because of kind of where I was, like I was sick and also I was planning to go and do this other thing. It wasn't like I was going to go and get like a permanent job. And I needed something that had a lot of flexibility because I was sick. Um, and uh, my brother suggested to me that I started playing poker, which is what, how that happened. So I now end up doing this thing because it obviously didn't end up lasting a year. It ended up lasting 18 years. <laughs> um, yeah, There you go. Where I'm really trying to, you know, I'm engaging in this activity where you're really trying to do this real-time decision-making under these very high-stakes circumstances. So if if you think about uh, what I was studying in in graduate school, which is about, like, how do people learn, how do people interact with their environment, how do people process information, I'm sort of landing in this amazing laboratory for thinking about in a very practical way and a way that had real consequences for myself because I was putting my money at risk. Sort of thinking about that, you know, in, in this new context. And um, then in 2002, uh, which is about eight years into my poker career, I got asked to come give a talk on how poker might inform uh, the way that uh, people deal with risk. And that was the first time that I, in a really explicit way, started thinking about how is poker, this experience that I'm having in poker, really kind of like filling in the blanks 
for me um, and informing what I had learned when I was doing cognitive psychology and the, also really vice versa, really explicitly thinking about cognitive psychology and how it might inform my thinking at, uh, in poker. And from that first talk in 2002, I started giving lots of talks to groups, um, really kind of got back into this teaching mode, uh, started getting caught up on research, um, started doing consulting, and ultimately that that ended up with Thinking and Bets, the, the book that I wrote. Just an unbelievable journey. And was your experience at graduate school the first time that you'd ever taken a keen interest in decision-making? Or was there an event or anything like that happened before in your life? Well, so when I was in graduate school, I wasn't studying decision-making per se. Um, this is going to sound really unrelated, but I promise it's very related. Uh, what I was studying was how children acquire their first language. So... I know that sounds like, what? <laughs> what on earth does that have to do with poker or decision-making or whatever? But at its core, it's, it's actually a very similar problem to the kind of thing that I was thinking about um, when I was playing poker or in decision-making in general. So if you think about a child learning their first language, so they don't know anything, and there's all these sounds, right? So people are saying these sounds to the child, and let's assume that the child can parse the sounds and they can figure out what are sounds that have something to do with language and what's a dog barking, right? So they have to make that separation um, or, you know, a plate crashing to the floor. They have to know that that's not language. So they have to focus in on the right language sounds. And then they have to figure out within that language, wh what are the words? Like, what are the boundaries of the words? And like, if you've ever listened to somebody speak a language that you don't know, it's actually very hard to find where those word boundaries are. Right, when you're just listening to the sound stream. So the, so the child has to be able to parse that information. But then once they do that, and this is where it starts to get very related, they have to figure out once they find an, a word that they, you know, and obviously they haven't heard it before, what does it mean? And that's really hard because from our perspective, because we know language, you know, we know the language that we speak, it seems like really easy. Well, if somebody points to a pillow, like obviously that's a pillow. You know, if somebody points to a dog, we just sort of feel like it's obvious that that's a dog. But think about it if you don't know that. And so the parent or, or whoever's saying it to you, you know, to the little child is pointing out into the world and saying some word like, you know, Dax. And may, maybe, maybe they're pointing at a dog. But what on earth does Dax mean? You know, does it mean a dog? Does it mean like mammal or animal does it mean a part of the dog like the nose or the leg does it mean a quality of the dog like furry or brown or soft um does it mean something the dog is doing like walking or barking something like that does it mean that pointing so if i point at the dog and i say dax i could i could be saying that whatever i'm doing which is pointing and then, like, there's a whole bunch of other things. Like, it could be my state of mind. So I could be saying, think. You know, because I could point at the dog and I could say, I think that's a dog. And what you're trying to figure out is what Dax, you know, I Dax, that's a dog. And you're trying to figure out what that is. So if you think about it, that's like a super hard mapping problem. Because there's so much uncertainty. And the question that I was asking in that situation was, how does the child very quickly figure out what means what, like how do they constrain, what are the constraints on that problem 
that make it so that they can hone in on what the word means. Now, I know that sounds really unrelated to what you're doing at poker, except that when I started thinking about poker, I realized that you have the same kind of constraint problem, that you have something that happens out in the world, like you win or lose a hand, or, you know, I bet you call, or, you know, I raise and you fold or whatever it is, and I have to take this this outcome, this thing that's happened, and I have to figure out why. What, why is this happening? And that's very noisy. It's not a perfect relationship, and you have to derive it just from the information that you're giving, with, given, which is also a very hard problem. And because I had come from uh, this language acquisition field where everything that we're thinking about is how is that problem constrained, I immediately brought that point of view into poker and started thinking about how do you constrain that problem so that you can start to figure out better what things mean. Well, that's that's absolutely fascinating. And that reminds me of something that you mentioned in the book in which you said life is more like poker than chess. Could you elaborate on this just a little bit more for us? Absolutely. So, so I, I can get, I can, I can show you very quickly why life is more like poker than chess. So, Let's say that, um, you know, you watch two people play chess. Uh, well, actually, let me start again. Let's say that you find out that two people have played chess. You know, so, uh, you know, Morgan and Leo have played chess. And you haven't watched the game. You didn't see them play. But all you know is that Morgan beat Leo. That's the only thing that you know, that Morgan won the game. And I say to you, uh, who do you think made better decisions, Morgan or Leo? What's your answer? Obviously the winner in that scenario. Right. And you would be right to say so. Like, that that's a pretty perfect... I mean, it, it's going it, to... You know, it may be that, like, Leo made one big error, but we know that if you look across all of the decisions, that Morgan played better... Uh, made better decisions than Leo, right? So now let's say that uh, Morgan and Leo play a half an hour of poker and you don't watch the game. So you haven't seen, you haven't seen any of the actual decisions they made. All you know is that after a half an hour in this game, Morgan ended up with more chips than Leo. That's all you know. Hmm. Who made better decisions? I mean, isn't it hard to say because it depends on what, you know, circumstances they were given. That's exactly right. So, okay, so now we can see there's this difference between poker and chess, right? In chess, if you know the outcome, if you know who won, you actually do know something true about the relative decision-making, but in poker, that's not true. So in poker, you don't know. So let's take a life's decision. So let's say that uh, Leo comes home one day, and all he says to you is, I got in a car accident. That's the only thing you know. Was it Leo's fault? I mean, you wouldn't know off of, off a of face value in, unless you knew the situation. That's right. So that is that right there is why life is more like poker than chess. So <laughs> so then what we want to ask ourselves is, okay, if we know that based on just you know these these limited outcomes, right? Obviously, in anything, if you have enough outcomes, you know something. Right, like if I flip a coin ten thousand times, I know something about the coin. If I flip it once, I don't know much. Right, but but 
you know, as we're processing experiences in life, generally we're, you know, it's like it comes one outcome at a time. And while in chess, it's pretty reasonable to say if I know what the outcome is, I know I can derive something about the decision making in life. That's not so. And so the question is, why is that? And it's because chess has has a different different influences in it or it's lacking particular two very strong influences that poker has and also life decisions have including just driving your car <laughs> so so let's think about what those two um, things are so in chess one of the big things that's missing from the equation is a very very strong influence of hidden information so if you think about a chess board i can see your whole position so I know where every single one of your pieces is, which means that if I'm considering what I want to do, I can see what every single response you could make is. And then from there, I could say, given any response you make, here's a response that I could make in return, and here's a response that you could make in return, and so on and so forth, because I can see the whole board. But that, like, it's, it's almost never in poker that we have information like that, right? So uh, in, in poker... Um, you can think about this very, very strong influence of hidden information in so much as I don't know what your cards are. So now this creates this uncertainty in terms of the types of decisions that I make, right? Because I don't know exactly what you have. So I, I, that puts a wrench in things. And, you know, obviously, like, that's true for most of the types of decisions that we make in life, that we have some information but not all. Um, so that makes that's one big influence. And then the second thing that's sort of missing from this poker, uh, from the, sorry, the second thing that's missing from the chess situation is a very strong influence of luck. So in chess, your pieces stay where they are until someone moves them by an act of skill. And where they move is constrained by the rules of the game. But what doesn't happen in chess is that like someone rolls dice and if they come up in 11, you lose your rook. Just comes off the board, right? Mm. Or anything like that. So so we know that there's not going to be this very strong influence of, of, of luck. But in poker, that's not true. In, in poker, you don't have control over the, the cards that come. So what that means is that, and this is why we can't work backwards in poker, but we can in chess. In poker, I could have the very best hand. And I could play it mathematically perfectly. And I can still lose. And even worse, I could have the very, this is actually a worse problem. I could have the very worst, like a terrible, terrible hand. I could play it mathematically as bad as you could imagine. And I can still win. Hmm. So what that means is that if I tell you whether I won or lost a hand, it doesn't help you very much in the short run because you don't know whether it was like I had a good hand, I played it well and I won. I had a good hand, I played it well and I lost. I had a bad hand, I played it poorly and I lost or I had a bad hand and I played it poorly and I won. And all those four things are available. So you don't know which one just based on one outcome. And that's the problem with when I say to you, well, I got in a car accident, did I, did I drive poorly? It's like, well, you don't know. Like, I could have driven really well and someone could have hit me. I could have driven really well and there could have been a mechanical failure in my car that I couldn't have expected. I could have driven quite poorly. You know, maybe I ran a red light and I was drinking and I still got home safely. That happens. 
right? Or, or maybe I ran a red light and I got in an accident and it was actually my fault. But, but again, just like in poker, all of those things are available to you. And that, that's, that's where the issue is. And that's why poker creates like this amazing model for studying human decision making. Yeah. And, and that makes complete sense. And what you said about having the, the worst hand and still winning, even with quality decision making, that made me think of, say, an example of, of, say, a teenager that goes on Instagram or something like this and, like, posts, like, a video of them singing horribly or someone takes, like, a video. They go viral and then, and they end up making millions for essentially do, doing nothing but, but, you know, but just attracting attention for looking silly. So that's, like, that, that made me think that that's exactly what you were saying, that you could have a terrible hand and have a quality t- uh, decision-making but still win. <laughs> yeah, so so that's the thing. It's like if you take that teenager, that example that you just gave, the, the problem that we have is that we're very likely to think that that happened because we're really good at creating viral moments, right? Mm. So, which we know if someone just takes a video and of you, you know, it's like right place, right time, the right person see, sees it, it just happens to get shared, like, you know, there are companies who claim they can create viral videos, but we know that that's not, that's not exactly easy to do. That's mostly that's mostly luck. But so now let's think about that person who then now thinks that this is something that they're really good at. Now maybe they're not pursuing other things that they're actually talented at or that would be a higher probability of them having success and they're actually re- trying to recreate that and make a living out of creating those viral moments. And it actually didn't have anything to do with their decision-making. In fact, the original decision was either like, you know, just totally done by luck or maybe it was a poor decision. And that's why I say that's the worst problem, because I think it's easier. It's easy for us to spot, at least easier for us to spot when we make a really good decision and it doesn't turn out well um, because of luck. Because if you think about it, that kind of plays into how we'd like to think about ourselves. Right. Because if we have a bad outcome, we don't want to think, oh, that's our fault. So it's easy for us to get to the place to say, well, actually, my decision making was pretty good. That was okay. And things just didn't go my way. Because that actually plays into our narrative really nicely. So so that's a problem. Because, you know, certainly, particularly when we're observing other people, we can put too much blame on them for bad outcomes. And sometimes we do self recriminate and think that something was our fault when actually our decision making was pretty good. And then we're afraid to make that decision again. So it does happen, but it's easier to spot the error because it plays more into what our narrative is. It's the other thing that's so hard to spot because when we have a good outcome, we're really eager to take credit for it. We're really eager to say that's because I'm smart or I'm talented or because of things that I did that I created that and I get to take credit for it and I get to take ownership over it. And when you dig down and you say, well, wait a minute, let me try to think about whether that was actually due to good luck. It actually, my decision making was pretty poor. And in the long run, that decision was going to work out really badly. Like who wants to do that? Because then you lose that ability to take credit. And we're all very eager for that credit. So that that's why I think that that's actually the wor- much worse side of the equation. Yeah. So, so one thing I was thinking about in your book, in terms of, say it was a formula, would you say that the quality of, of one's life would be in, say, direct proportion to the amount of luck plus 
the quality of decision making. Am I am I right in saying that? Yeah. So your your life is only the it's it's only those two things. It's the quality of your decisions plus luck. Mm. That that literally that's a hundred percent of it. So um, so what what I try to tell people is you don't you know luck is you don't have control over luck. You have control over the quality of your decisions. So that's really what you should be focusing on. And then, you know, I'll sometimes have people say that thing to me, like, well, don't you make your own luck? Don't people make their own luck? And I'm like, no, because luck is, by definition, something that you don't have control over. What you can do is make your own decisions. And those decisions can certainly reduce the chances of something bad happening. Or, you know, increase the chances of something good happening. But ultimately, you don't really, you, you by definition, don't have control over the luck part. So what, what we can think about is, like, let's say that I'm considering uh, two different options for something. When I make a decision, when I make a choice, what I'm doing is defining the set of possibilities, right? So uh, when I make a particular decision, there's a set of possible outcomes that could occur from that. And each of those possibilities has some probability of happening. So the choice defines that set. But after that, luck is what intervenes to tell me what's going to happen. So, like, I mean, the simplest way to describe it is if I roll, if I, if I roll a, a six-sided die, there's six possible outcomes. It lands one, two, three, four, five, or six. And each of those is going to occur a sixth of the time. And, you know, the, the die leaves my hand and it's luck that's going to determine which thing actually occurs. And we can think about that with any decision that we make. It's like if I decide to go to, um, if I decide to take a particular job, there's a set of possible outcomes. You know, I get promoted within a year. I get fired within a year. Um, I don't like the job and I quit, you know, so on and so forth. So we can sort of think about what is that set of possible outcomes. And depending on my own decisions, that's going to determine what that set looks like, what outcomes are available to me, and what the probability of each of those outcomes is. And that's, as we're, as we're weighing options, like I have choice A or choice B, really what we're doing is we're looking at choice A and we're saying, here are the set of possibilities that could occur from this. Here's how often those things might occur. Here's choice B. Here's the set of possibilities that might occur from that. Here's how often those things might occur. And what I'm really doing is saying, which thing do I think is going to get me the thing that I want at the highest percentage of the time? So I think that's where that confusion about making your own luck is, that if I'm weighing option A or option B, the stuff that I don't like is going to occur at different percentages of the time, depending on whether I choose A or B. So you should choose wisely, because that's where the control is. Hmm. Those things definitely, definitely go hand in hand. And if we talk about sort of the art of decision making itself, I wonder, I wanted to ask you, what factors should we be considering when making this, this a decision? Like, how do we effectively evaluate those? And ultimately, should they determine the outcome of the decision? Like, what are the factors that go into uh, making a decision? And what are you analyzing? Yeah, well, well, first of all, definitely not a pro and con list. <laughs> <laughs> let me chase, let me chase you away from a pro and con list. Um, so actually, if I talk to you, if I just say really briefly about a pro and con list, we can kind of get to the factors that go into making a good decision. So the problem with a pro and con list is that 
there's, there's diff, as you just said, there's different factors that go into a making a decision, but a pro and con list doesn't actually separate those factors out from each other. Mm-hmm. So on the, you know, on the pro side and on the con side, you're going to get a mix of things like cost, benefits, outcomes, you know, probabilities, that kind of stuff. So, so sitting on the con side could be like, it's going to take a lot of time and it could also on the con side might be, I might break my leg, but breaking your leg is an outcome and taking a lot of time is a cost, but, but they're just mushed together, right? So they're all kind of in a mush. So you're not really comparing apples to apples. Um, and then also there's no, there's no dimension to a pro and con list. So when I, when I list my cons, there's no sense of how much I dislike each of those things, which you really want to know. You want to know something about the amplitude of how much you like or dislike something. And then also what's not in there is like, if I look at those outcomes, there's no sense of probability, right? How often is that? Like I might break my leg, but okay, but what percentage of the time and compared, compared to what compared to the other things that might happen. The, the other problem with a pro and con list is that while your goals and values are implicit in a pro and con list, because I guess they, but the things that you have on the pro side, you're saying you value, right? It's not explicitly stated anywhere, and that's actually a really important thing. So that kind of can get us to understanding what the pieces of the decision are. So the first thing is what's your goal and what are your values? So you need to know that in order to make a good decision. You need to explore that. And we actually don't explore that particular piece of the puzzle that much. I think that we, we kind of assume that we know what our values are and our goals are, so we don't really explicitly state them. But I think sometimes we're very surprised by finding out after the fact that actually we valued something different than we thought. And this happens, for example, with our time a lot, where we... Like, have you ever had the experience of, like, you're about to get on a plane to go somewhere and you're like, ugh, I can't believe I have to pack right now, and now I realize I really didn't have the time to go do this. For sure, yeah. yeah, but, for sure, yeah. And that's because you weren't thinking in advance about what, what you value or what the value of your, like, what the value of your time is. So we want to think about our goals and values. So, and those are going to be different for different people. So, like, two people could have the same goal which would be like, I want to take a job that provides for my family. Okay, so that might be the top-line goal. But then you have to think about what you value, because for person A, providing for the family might be providing time. They might really value time with their family, and that's what they're trying to get out of the job, is sort of to be able to maximize time with their family. And for another person, providing for their family might mean my family never needs to worry about money ever. And that might be what they're trying to maximize on. So you have to, that's the top thing that you have to do is goals and values. And then what you have to do is think about for any option that I'm thinking about, what's the cost of of the option, which can be time, money, goodwill, social capital, uh, you know, any kind of resource. So that's one kind of cost. And then the other kind of cost you want to think about is opportunity cost. So if I do this, what are the things that I can't do because of it? So you have to also think about that. So that's the cost side. Then you want to think about what the set of possibilities is. So what are the what are the reasonable ways that this could turn out? Then you want to think about how often could those things happen? And then the last thing is what do I what what's the payoff? So and also you want to think about obviously because you've done your goals and values you can think about what your preference for those different outcomes are. 
Now, the reason why you want to think about payoffs and costs is that um, sort of, you know, as a blunt instrument, once you know what are the possibilities and how often do they occur and what's my preference for those possibilities, you can certainly look at a decision and say, how often am I going to get a, a, something happening that I, that I like, that I prefer? But we know that that doesn't get you all the way because you could choose an option that has a lower probability of something good happening for two reasons. One is that the cost might be lower, right? It might take less time or less money or whatever. There might be fewer opportunity costs. And so you would take a lower probability of good stuff happening because the upfront cost is less. The other reason why you might do that is because the payoff is so big. So like that would be like why you would do a startup as opposed to take a more steady job, right? So you have a bigger chance of failure, but maybe the payoff is greater. And on the flip side, obviously, you could do something that has a higher chance of something bad happening because in the other set, the, the small percentage of time that something bad happens, it's really, really bad. Like you go out of business or you die or you know something like that. And the other set, while well, it has more... Like there's a higher likelihood of a non-preferred option. The amplitude of those options isn't so bad, right? So we, we want to go beyond that. But just as your just, just as like a, a kind of blunt instrument, if all you ever did was say, what are the things that could happen? How often do they occur? And what are my preferences in here? So that you could see sort of how often you're getting something you like versus something you don't like. Your decision making is going to improve like by a ton. Yeah, I mean, I love that because it really does highlight what and an art and a science decision-making can be. And what that made me wonder then is there are a lot of professions out there where decision-making has to take place in a matter of minutes, seconds, even milliseconds in some cases. Is there a process for doing this effectively or even a way we can condition ourselves to effectively make you know, decisions in seconds, milliseconds, things like that? For sure. So... So first of all, I, I'm going to set aside and we can come back to it if, if you want. There's some times when you, there are decisions that you actually shouldn't be spending much time on, period. Not because there's constraints. Like in poker, there's a constraint. I've got to decide fast. But sometimes even if you had all the time in the world, you should actually decide really quickly. That's a whole different ball game, And, and we can, if we want to circle back to that, we can. Um, but it's up to you. Um, but in terms of like, let's say that you really do have high stakes decisions and you have to make them very quickly. So here's the thing. It's not like this structure goes away because you can broadly think about these things pretty quickly. Are you going to get to as, as a precise an answer? Probably not. So the way we think about, uh, how, how do we actually sort of construct this, right? Like, how do we think about what are our options? How often will things occur? How likely are they to occur? What is it that we're bringing to bear on those questions? Well, the the things that we know. So uh, we think about what do we know that's going to, you know, bear on what we think the best choice is. But then also, if we have lots of time, we can say, what are the things that I could go find out? What are the things that I could go learn that would help me to actually make a better forecast here, like to think about what the future is going to look like better. Now, as you constrain your time, uh, first of all, some options go away, 
right? Like options that take a lot of time, but also this particular option goes away. This thing of like, let me go find some other stuff out. Like, let me take out Google, right? Let, let me go talk to some people. Let me go get feedback from a group, whatever. Like all, all of that ability to say, what don't I know that would really help me here? You, you're making decisions really fast, so you can't go and find any of that stuff out. So what it means is that you're just really bringing to bear the things that you know on the decision and you're doing it really quickly. Now that's, that's fine as long as after the fact you go and you do this process in a more deliberate way because what you don't want to do, so, so this is basically saying I'm going to allow my gut to kind of be in control in the moment, but then you don't want to close your gut off to saying, let, let me take the decision out of the gut and into the deliberative mind and let me take a look at it. Because when you do that, then you actually hone your gut response because you can start to see where you might have gone wrong in the fast decision-making process. So it's this idea of sort of embracing the fact of in the moment, I'm kind of doing my best under the time constraint and the knowledge that I have. But what I want to do is be willing to look at it later, pick it apart, try to figure out if I had a lot of time, how would I built out that, you know, set of possibilities and, and so on and so forth. Let me see where, where maybe I could have done better. Let me, let me think about what I could have, what, I, what knowledge I could have found out that would have helped me. Once you find that knowledge out, you own that knowledge. So that's certainly going to help you. And then you find out places where maybe you misestimated or you were really like in the moment you were too taken with something that had recently happened or whatever. And then you poke holes in it. And then what that does is it becomes now a, a self-reinforcing process where you, you make the gut decision, you take it out, you look at it, you refine it, and then you put it back into that more automatic process. And then you're, you're refining that automatic process so that it becomes more accurate and better. Yeah, that that's so so interesting. You know what you've just said. It it makes me think of the book um, by uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Thinking Fast and mm-hmm. Slow. So you've got the 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 fast unconscious, very you know first thing that comes to your mind. You know who's successful, Richard Branson, you know type type of thinking, and then you've got the the more the slower, more deliberate, you know conscious thinking. And I was just thinking, you know, about what you've just said, and and. Are we at an evolutionary disadvantage sort of thing that like inhibits us to to make decisions quickly? Sort of like if we were in a jungle type thing and something may like I may have like triggered us and, and then the first thing is like run. You know, there may be a lion. Does that inhibit us today? As in um some sort of like evolutionary bias which affects our decision making. For sure. So so let me say, like, I, I hesitate to say good or bad because it, it kind of depends on what the goal is, right? So we know that, like, I mean, you know, obviously to anthropomorphize evolution, evolution's no dummy, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact that we're, we were here and we survived means that evolution selected pretty well. Otherwise, we'd be dead. So let's just remember. <laughs> so it, it just depends on, like, what you're trying to accomplish, right? So uh, in some ways, the challenges of the modern world uh, some of the things that have been selected for might not be particularly well suited to the challenges of the modern world. And one of the places where I think that we're not particularly 
suited to the challenges of the modern world come from from sort of what evolution has selected for in the way that we process information. So um, a couple of things. One is that evolution has very much selected for us to be kind of true believers. So what I mean by that is if you're a perfectly rational human, like a, a perfectly rational actor, and I tell you a piece of information, if you're rational, you will not decide whether it's true or false before you vet it, before you think, well, you know, how does this fit into what I know or what I don't know? Like, what's the quality of the evidence? Let me think about this in terms of, you know, the world or what can be true or can't be true or so on and so forth. Like, you'll take some time with it. So you'll approach it from a relatively neutral position until you sort of figure out whether you should store it as true or false. And then once you store it as true or false, you'll hold that belief very loosely uh, so that when new evidence comes in, you will be willing to correct the belief pretty quickly. So, so that would that's how it would proceed if you were, you know, just if we were trying to maximize your ability to process information, regardless of whether this helps you survive or not, right? But what's happened is that evolution has selected for us to do actually something very different, which is information comes in, we believe it, and then maybe if we have the time later, we'll correct it. And we mostly don't correct it because once we form a belief, we actually hold it very strongly. And it becomes pretty immovable, even even in the face of corrective information. So why, 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 I'll give you three reasons why evolution has sort of put pressure on that. So the first is what you just said, which is if there's rustling in the leaves and you hear a lion, or whether you, you just hear rustling in the leaves, um, so obviously you don't know if it's a lion or not, you just hear rustling, the ancestor that survived was the one that ran away not the one that said, well, let me investigate and do like a controlled double-blind experiment to see whether a lion is back there because that person got eaten. So we did better uh, if we made it. So there's two different types of errors you can make. One is a type 1 error or false positive, which is I believe something to be true that isn't. So that's you hear rustling in the leaves and you run away, but maybe there's not a lion there. So, so that's a type one error. A type two error, which is a false negative, is you believe something to be false that is true. So that would be you hear rustling in the leaves, you say, probably not a lion, and it turns out there's a lion. So obviously, people who committed those errors got eaten. Okay, so the ones who were tending toward this, you know, I just believe that it's a lion and I run away, survive. So that, that's reason number one. Then... Reason number two is that, you know, the way that evolution works, it builds on top of the structures uh, that are already there. So, like, our eyes are a really good example, right? That there were some species had little spots that detected light and dark. And then, you know, as time went on and, and that species evolved, um, you know, slow, slowly but surely, you know, you end up with an eye. But what that means, because you're building on what's already there, is that it's usually not, it's, it's pretty much never like as good as it would be if you just started from scratch. So that's why our eyes are not nearly as good as like an iPhone camera. 
because, you know, it's like the lens is at the back and the image is upside down and, you know, they're, they're pretty crappy because they're filled with water. And so it's like the, the acuity is not great, but it's because it was being built on a structure that was already there. And so, you know, evolution's pretty good at good enough and our eyes are good enough, but they're not as good as they would be if you started from scratch. So it, that's true with our, our belief system as well. So for, for most of the history of your ancestors, um, there was no way for your ancestors for, to form a belief without actually experiencing it for themselves because they didn't have language. So how could they form a belief about something? They had to like see it. Like, there's a tree. I see it with my own eyes. And obviously there's no reason to vet that information because you're seeing it. There's a tree. I'm touching it. I'm seeing it. I'm experiencing it. So therefore you just store it as this, this, you know, true, this tree exists. Then our ancestors developed language and along with language came the capacity for abstract thought, which was the ability to uh, think about things that you had not experienced for yourself. And so now all of a sudden I can tell you about a tree that you haven't experienced before. So just like with the eye, we already had a belief system in place, which is the way that we form beliefs about things that we had perceived with our own senses. And now when you tell me something about something I have not seen myself, evolution's like, cool, I'll just build on top of that system that's already there. And your abstract belief system works just as if you had seen it for your own eyes. And so now when somebody tells you something about, about a tree you haven't experienced, you believe that that tree exists. So that, that's the second reason. And then, then the third reason actually has to do with... Um, the way that we banded together into social groups in order to survive because we're physically very weak. We're very slow. We're not very, you know, for our size, we're not strong. We don't have claws, big claws. We don't have big teeth. Um, and so like, you know, in a mano a mano battle with, with a hyena, we're in pretty bad shape. But if we all group together into these kinship groups, that then we're pretty good against the hyena. And so this was a big advantage for us. So we formed these kinship groups and within that we were communicating with each other and think about it. Like, why would you talk to somebody in your group if you weren't sure whether they were telling the truth or not? Like if, if when I told you something within our tribe and, and you, you approached it in a neutral way, like, well, I don't know if what Annie's saying is true or false or not. Let me just see what would be the point of talking to each other there wouldn't be, I mean, it's like human discourse would break down. So we, we just believe what people tell us is true. And so all of these things come together to really put us at a disadvantage in terms of the way that we're processing, um, that we, that we process the information that we get today, which is that we really tend to believe it's true. Um, what we hear and you can think about like now there's all this information coming in. So it's like, you know, this information overload and we really aren't very good at vetting that information. We're really not built for that. Um, and then on top of that, we don't update very well. Because once we form a belief, we form it pretty strongly. And that was also to our evolutionary advantage a long time ago. But now it means that we're pretty impervious to corrective information. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've just absolutely blown my mind. <laughs> I mean, that was just... I was just I I was just hooked on every word. I mean, it makes complete sense as well to think about. But I mean, I've never heard it put like that. That was just such a brilliant answer. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I didn't make that up out of my 
own head. There's many people who have come before me who have made similar arguments like Michael Shermer and Gary Marcus and actually Daniel Kahneman and uh, Dan Gilbert and, um, you know, there's this, you know, Jay Van Babel. I mean, this is all, this is, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of like many, many amazing scientists to tell you that, that narrative. So there you go. Yeah, but it was also the way you articulated it, I thought. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so if we could just circle back, so say let's go through the key themes of your book. So the thing which really caught my attention was this idea that you talk about resulting. Mm-hmm. So could you just give our audience a, just a, an overview of this and sort of link it into how this confirmation bias, which you've explicitly talked about today, how they link with each other? Sure. Yeah, so actually resulting is a really good example of how we handle the complexity of the world, right? So that that's what we were just talking about in terms of how are you vetting information that comes in, right? I mean, it's complex. Um, so there's all sorts of complexity, and what our brains tend to want to do is simplify, right? They want to make the problem easier. They want, you know, the, our brains want to find shortcuts. Um, and so one of the shortcuts that our brain finds in order to deal with complexity is called resulting. And basically what happens with resulting is this, that what we're always trying to do is figure out was a decision good or bad. And obviously the reason why we want to find out whether a decision was good or bad is that we want to figure out, should I make that decision again in the future or not? What can I learn from it? But here's the problem. Figuring out what the quality of a decision is, is very complex, particularly after the fact, because uh, the underlying mathematics are hard. Like, like I said, uh, you know, life is more like poker where there's lots of hidden information. So we don't know exactly what all the relevant information would be that would go into the decision. We're working under conditions where the, you know, the decision is all, the information is always imperfect. And then there's this influence of luck. And if we think about as we're trying to figure out like what, what are all the possibilities, you have to think about, well, what were the possibilities uh, how often are those things going to, you know, occur? And those probabilities are very often, you know, not precise. Um, it's it's rare that you can say that something's going to happen, you know, 35% of the time exactly. Um, it's usually a little bit, you know, a wider range than that um, where you're trying to get at that. And then also, you, you know, it's not, you don't necessarily know what the options are that you could have compared that to. Like what, if I'm trying to decide whether a decision was good or bad, like I, I have to try to reconstruct what the other options were. So, you know, all of that's really hard and it's complex and it's difficult. What's not difficult is how it turned out. That I can see right in front of my face. So uh, the example that, that I give in the book is a football example where um, Pete Carroll, who was the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, um, th- they were in the Super Bowl against uh the New England Patriots, and at the end of the game in the Super Bowl, the Seahawks needed to score a touchdown in order to win. It was right at the end of the game. There were only 26 seconds left in the whole game, and Pete Carroll calls for a pass play, which was a pretty unexpected play, and the ball gets intercepted. So that's, that's the end of the game, right? The, the Patriots catch the ball that was meant for the Seahawks receiver. Game over. Now, What's very, very clear is what the quality of that result was. It's a disaster. It's 
awful. So that's, that's not complex. That's simple. So what our brains do is we, we hone on in on this thing that's very simple, which is, wow, that turned out awful. And then we link it to the quality of the decision. So we say that turned out awful, therefore, that must have been a really horrible decision. And that's what resulting is. It's taking the shortcut of if I know how it turned out, that tells me what I need to know about the quality of the decision. But going way back to the beginning of our conversation, we can't really do that. If you know that I got in a car accident, disastrous results, you know, you really don't know what the quality of my decisions are. You don't have enough information. But in a lot of cases, particularly in cases where um, we feel like there isn't like a lot of consensus around something, uh, where something is a decision that seems a little bit, you know, the more complicated the decision is, the, or the more complicated that we feel the decision is, the more likely we're, we are to do resulting. And like in this football case, for example, people don't really know how to work out the math or what the decision, you know, the decision analysis would look like. And so you do this resulting thing. And we do this all the time. It's like, you know, someone founds a startup and it succeeds and it's like they're a genius, you know, and someone founds a startup and it fails and it's like they're an idiot. They made all sorts of mistakes. That's their fault. But, it, you know, it's usually not that black and white, but, but this is what we do. And this, this really impedes learning because it means that we're not really get, getting down into what the actual quality of the decision is. And we're going to learn pretty bad lessons from those outcomes then when we take these shortcuts. One thing we really wanted to ask you is about instant gratification. How big of a factor is that in decision making? Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm always, I love when someone asks me a question that I haven't been asked before. So that was, that's one right there. (laughs) Um, So instant gratification, I think is like humongous. Um, in, In this sense, I think that our lives are a battle between who we are in this moment and how the person in this moment feels and who we want to be in the future. So, like, I feel like if I were to ask anybody, hey, in the future, if you imagine yourself in the future, would you like to be a better decision maker? I, I can't imagine anybody would say no to that. I mean, I think that everybody has that goal. Yes, I would like to make better decisions and, you know, do a better job with that kind of stuff. And if I said to them, well, let me ask you a question. In order to do that, do you think that in the future at some point you're probably going to have found out that you made some mistakes or that you believe things that weren't exactly true and you needed to correct that in order to make your decisions better? You know, I mean, what would your answer did that be? If I said, like, if you want to be a better decision maker, do you think that the part of that process in the future is going to be like you're going to have to find out that you were wrong about something or that you made a mistake and then you, you're going to need to incorporate that and, and correct it in order to make better decisions? Would you say yes? Yes, of course, yeah. Right. Okay, so now, so that's what you want for your future self. So that's future you being like, this is what I'd like. But now let's think about the problem for the version of you right now. The things that we believe are really the fabric of our identity. They're who we are. And when you disagree with me or when I come across information that might suggest that a belief that I have is wrong, 
if I incorporate that right now, that's going to tear a hole in the fabric of my identity. It's going to make me feel bad. I mean, does it feel good to you guys when, when you feel like you did something wrong or something was your fault? No, no, no. no. Does it feel good to you when you find out that something you believed really strongly might be wrong? Does it feel good to you to talk to somebody who disagrees with you, like, politically? No. Does that, I mean, no. Hmm. It feels like an assault, and it feels like an assault on you, like an assault on your identity. So now we have a problem. Because we know that, in theory, in order to take care of the future version of you, that there are going to be points along the way when you're going to have to find out that you were wrong. But in the moment, nobody wants to be wrong because it feels bad. So the way that we process information in the moment is to gratify ourselves in this very particular way, which is to make sure that we're protecting our identity at all times. So here's how it goes. And this plays into confirmation bias. I notice stuff that agrees with me a lot. Why? Because that makes me feel good. Does that help me be a better decision maker in the future? Not so much because... We know that in order for me to be a better decision maker in the future, I already know the things I know. It's important that I find out the things that I'm wrong about or that I don't know, right? But confirmation bias makes us seek out the very stuff that isn't particularly helpful, which is the stuff that we already know, the stuff that already agrees with us. Not only that, do we notice that, but that's who we go talk to. That's who we follow, like on social media. If you look at people's social media threads, it tends to be people who agree with them who hold the same opinions as they do. That tends to be the news that we look at. It tends to be the people that we talk to. So again, we're not exposing ourselves to the opportunity to get the corrective information that would actually help us in the future because we want to preserve our identities now and so it feels good to, to, to stay in this confirmation zone. And then on the flip side, the other problem is that when we do happen to come across something that disagrees with us, we work really, really, really hard to discredit it. So... If I were to read an article that disagrees with me politically, by the end of it, I've written a dissertation about why the person's biased and all the data that they're ignoring and why they're actually putting a lot of spin on it and why their narrative is, is wrong, you know, and all the stuff they're missing and why they're not a trusted source anyway. Does that sound like about right? Because I know it's what I do. Mm, oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. Yeah. So, so you're not really approaching the information that, that might correct your beliefs in an open-minded way. You're approaching that information in a way where you're purposely trying to disconfirm it so that you don't have to tear a hole in the fabric of your identity. So that's all great for you in the moment in terms of making sure that you feel good about yourself. But it's created a problem for you in the future. So it's this empathy gap between you now and you in the future, and you now is always winning. That's the instant gratification. And somehow we need to figure out how do we change the incentives for you in the moment so that the things that are making you feel good now, the stuff that you are getting gratification from, are actually in alignment with what's going to be good for you in the future. Because you come, you know, the way that we naturally think about the world, there's a big misalignment between those two things. And so we want to bring those two things in line. What what would you advise in terms of in terms of aligning those two concepts in terms of marrying the ideas? Yeah, so I'm a humongous believer in social reinforcement. Um, I think that this idea of feeling feeling like you belong to a social group, like that you're really part of a group, 
and that you're distinct from other groups is incredibly powerful. Now, left to its own devices, it actually creates a lot of this problem, right? So your group identity is tied to some sort of set of beliefs, and those beliefs just, you know, tend to get self-reinforced within the group, right? So, so left to its own devices, I think that it actually can cause polarization. But I think you can think about how, how can I use that to my advantage? So let's say the, the three of us form a group, and our group is a little different. Our group is uh, we are going to give each other reward for when we admit a mistake. We're going to give each other a reward when we find an article that disagrees with us, but that we think really deserves a lot of consideration and discussion. We're going to give each other a reward when there's someone who's out of our group, who we disagree with, who we think we should give some credit to. And this is what we actually end up rewarding each other for. So if I come to you and I just say, you know, Oh, that that person over there is an idiot. You're you say to me, I don't want to hear that. Like, tell me what they do well. Or if I come to you and I say, I can't believe this. I made such great decisions and I just got unlucky. And you say to me, I don't want to hear that. I want to know what the decisions were because maybe we can find some mistakes in there so that you can get better in the future. And I'm like, oh my god, that's amazing. And then all of a sudden, you're engaging with me, and that that's what causes the engagement and the discussion. And that's what gets the positive reinforcement. Now, I think that you can really get these two things aligned. Because what our group is reinforcing on, what is giving us that sense of belongingness, and in fact, what is also giving us the sense of distinctiveness from other people, is that the things that we're talking about are the places we go wrong. The things that we're talking about is what the best arguments for the other side are. The places that we're, the things that we're talking about is how someone who we really don't like might have done something good. You know, that yes, I had a great result, but I want to actually talk about maybe how I could have even been better, the mistakes that I made along the way. And this is now what we're engaging each other on. And so I get to feel good in the moment because I'm getting all of that juicy group belongingness and distinctiveness and all of that stuff. But it also happens to be in a line with my future self. Now, to be clear, I'm not recommending that you sacrifice yourself now in favor of your future self. If you do it this way, you get to feel really good now. And it, as, as a side benefit, it happens to help you in the future. Yeah, what a, what a, what a fascinating concept that is. And um, what, what you're talking about there really reminds me of um, a video which I watched before. And it was uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger speaking. I think at a at a stakeholder, and they seem enormous on this on this idea that essentially you can become unbelievably successful in life by just not being wrong a whole lot of times. Yeah, you know, is that something that you believe in? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, if so, here here's the thing is that we had this talk about evolution. You know, we just talked about this. And you're not going to undo your evolution. You know, it's not like somehow you can just today undo millions of years of what got you here. So the idea that you're somehow going to be perfect, that you're going to be right every single time, 
and that you're going to be rational every single time and that you're not going to engage in confirmation bias. You're not going to do discount, you know, that you're not going to believe what you hear too easily. Uh, you know, that you're not going to engage in resulting, you know, any host of biases, any host of irrationalities. That would be insanity to think that somehow, you know, you can be perfectly rational. That's impossible. It's so impossible that what I will tell you is that the best person in the world at this stuff is very, very, very far from that goal. So instead, looking at it from the other direction, I think is, is the appropriate perspective, which is I, I'm going to suck because this is stuff that human beings suck at. So my job is to suck less. If I can just be less wrong, I'm going to be way better off. So like the way that I try to explain it is like, let's say that there's a hundred different pieces of information that I have to process and on my own, I'm I'm making some kind of grave error 95% of the time. But then I like really work hard and I do this work and we form a a great decision pod and we're reinforcing on other things and we're doing all of this stuff, which makes it so that out of those hundred opportunities, I I make an error 90% of the time instead of 95% of the time. Well, you could look at that and say, wow, Annie's a complete failure because she's failing 90% of the time. Or you could say, oh my gosh, look at how much better she's doing than what she would if she weren't putting this work in. I just doubled my ability to spot, to, to avoid error. And so, so I'm being, I'm being a lot less wrong now. And that is a huge thing. That will make all the difference as that compounds over every single decision that you make throughout your life. That's huge. And I think that there's a really wonderful benefit when you take this attitude of I'm just, I'm trying to be less wrong is that it's just so much more self-compassionate and it's so much more compassionate toward other people because instead of holding anybody, yourself or others to a standard of, of like, well, you know, if you were perfect, this is what you would do. And so anything below that is failure. Instead, you're looking at it as we're all abject failures. Of course we are. This is how we were built. I mean, we're not failures in the sense that as biological beings, we've done really well, right? Like we're, we're pretty great in that sense. But in terms of like, how would we rationally, you know, in a perfectly rational way, be processing information? We're all pretty abject failures there. So now let's look at people through the lens. Are you, are, you know, are you failing less? And that is everything. Mm, yeah you know what what a what a what a fantastic concept that is just in terms of you know of the the self-compassion and the you know and and just the idea which which what you what you say but they have just being wrong essentially less which just which just has an enormous compound effect over time and one thing which you know when you know we look at you know your life the one thing which we can say with certainty is that you have no question done, you've made a lot of great decisions. And one thing we'd like to know, and, and we, we, we often get asked to ask this question is, what rules do you like to break in life? Oh my gosh. I figured out what the rules are, so I don't, I don't know <laughs> what I'm breaking. Um, you know, I mean, I obviously, I, I 
rule that I I don't ever want to break. I mean, I'm sure that I I have in my life. I mean, because we all have, but is, you know, don't, obviously don't, no direct harm to another human being. So, so that, that, you know, and also I I do, I do try very hard to sort of follow the rule of, um, I should not be allowed to impose my values on other people. Um, and I try to follow that. So, so I don't break those rules. Um, I think probably the biggest, I mean, I guess you could call it a rule. You can tell me if this answers your question. I don't know, but I do feel like people sort of have this idea around security. Like what is it, what does it mean to have like a steady job? Um, what does it mean to have, you know, security in your life? And I think that I have someone who's always been willing to really go against the grain on there and really view it as, if you think that you have security because like you have a nine to five job or because you have a boss or because you think you have a steady paycheck or whatever, that that's an illusion because that, that could, that could all go away. So if you're figuring out a way to sort of like, you know, sort of in some sense, try to find a way that your destiny is just sort of based on the decisions that you make and you sort of accept the uncertainty that if I'm making positive expected value decisions, you know, that that will play out over time in whatever arena it is, then I think you're, you end up in sort of a more entrepreneurial place where you're not trading off a false sense of security because you're relying on somebody else to be giving you that security in that sense. And you're willing to be in a place where you, you could totally fail but you trust that over the course of all the decisions that you've made, you know, success will come from that. Um, and that, you know, I mean, that's been okay with me. Um, and I've had really big failures. You know, I, I, I had a business that failed um, that, you know, was a startup. And, but, I, you know, I was willing to try. But that's one of many, many decisions that I've made. You know, and over sort of the, all of the decisions that I've made, you know, some of them worked out and some of them haven't. But I think because I'm willing to try that I, my life has ended up in really interesting places that it otherwise wouldn't have because I was willing to sort of say, I, I, I'm not going to buy into that idea that security comes from X, Y, or Z. Annie, that's, a, that's exactly what we were looking for. That's something that, you know, the idea of security is something we've talked about extensively on year before. So that, that was perfect. And, um, I tried though I tried no it was perfect honestly <laughs> um yeah one of the last questions that we always ask our guests um as we have a lot of authors on such as yourself is we like to ask the authors are there any books that you've read in your life that have impacted you oh my gosh so many uh where do we start <laughs> I mean so first of all there, there's lots of there's lots of fiction that has, has certainly impacted me. Um, you know, books like Catch-22, for example, or, uh, you know, The Sound and the Fury, or like Tess of the Dur- Durbervilles, or, um, you know, uh, just, well, I mean, I was an English major, so there's a lot of those. For sure. uh, um, where it's just like the, the amazing quality of the writing and whatnot. But there's so much stuff in the 
nonfiction space, I think that we're living in this really wonderful time now where there's so many great, you know, influential books that I think can really improve the quality of your thinking, you know, from, you know, we talked about thinking fast and slow. There's super forecasting from Phil Tetlock, uh, you know, Dan Ariely, uh, Charles Duhigg would like the power of habit and, and so on and so forth. You know, Sapolsky with um, Behave, which is incredible, which is really looking at sort of, you know, biology, neurology, you know, uh, you know, neuroscience, you know, behavior, all this stuff, which is amazing. Obviously, Yuval Harari and what, what he's done with um, Sapiens, you know, and Homo Deus, which is, you know, incredible to be able to read that kind of stuff. Um, I, I mean, it just goes on and on. There, oh, there's a great book by Scott Page called The Model Thinker which is incredible. Um, and there's another book coming out, which is in the same kind of space called super thinking, which is also great. Um, oh my gosh. It's like there's, there's 10 great ideas about chance. I would really recommend that people go read that. Uh, Michael Malbison, read everything that that man has ever written. <laughs> well, he's, uh, he's got a book called the, um, success equation but also he just pu- he publishes a lot of really great white papers uh that really help you to i think think about the world in a really interesting way he's he's a precision thinker he's a voracious reader so so he's metabolizing a lot of this stuff uh and and putting it into this framework for thinking that that's just absolutely incredible and then you know i, I think a great resource in terms of like an online resource there's a few people who are mostly producing online but also have books like Michael Backnick, um, Morgan Housel, who are writing in the financial space. There's also Shane Parrish and Farnham Street, um, which is such an incredible community for really thinking about your own thinking. I mean, like literally, we could go for two more hours. I mean, that's a good sampling. I mean, I think if you start there, you're going to start to get to a lot of. They'll have that will lead you in the right direction. But I think I think we really live in like an amazing time for this kind of writing. What a fantastic answer. And there's so many great books there and our audience will appreciate that so much. Um, and this has been and just... I apologize to anything I left off. It's just there's so yeah. much, you know, so... Uh, yeah. Everyone you know. says the same. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we, we, it's been such an unbelievable episode. And our last question is going to be, if you could distill your life events, your the the past experiences, something that you know, that you've gone through, just down into one short but impactful message, what would your message to the world be? You know what, I'll tell you what it is, Uh, and I hope this, so we have, there's this term in poker, uh, I I, I think it was, this was sort of for older players, but we used to say uh, the term luck box, and luck box was just a way to say like someone on average was really lucky. Right, like there's a lot of luck, you know. It's like, oh, you're such a luck box, right? So, like, if a lot of hands went your way or something, you'd be like, you're such a luck box. So it's a it's a fun term. So you can take that away because it's a great thing to say to people, right? So, like, for example, like if you think that someone's dating above their expected value, you'd be like, yeah, you're such a luck box, right? <laughs> so, um, it's it's an all purpose term. It's an all purpose term. So so I think that if I had to distill the experience of my life, what I would say is. I'm a total luck box and that's okay because it doesn't take away from the fact that I think I've also done a pretty good job with the luck that's come my way. So the, the reason why I say that is I think that people don't like to foreground 
the luck in their life because I think that it feels like you're taking credit away from the stuff that you've done well if you foreground the luck. And I'm a big believer in foregrounding the luck. You know, I think luck is fine. It's, it's, you know, it's neither good nor bad. It's just something that happens. And there's so much luck in our lives. And it's not about does that take away credit or not. It's about what do you do with the things that luck puts in your way, whether, whether it's good luck or bad luck, right? Like whether it's something good that luck puts in your way or something bad that luck puts in your way, like what do you do with it? And there's, I, there's, it's impossible for me to say that I've gotten to where I am without being a complete and utter luck luck. Where can our audience find you on social media, Annie? <laughs> so, um, at the usual places, but the place where I'm personally uh, most active on social media would be um, Twitter. And you can find me there at, at Annie Duke. Um, and then in terms of finding me to contact me or to interact with uh, my, you know, what I do in a different way, if you go to my website, AnnieDuke.com, um, there's like lots of video on there. And then I also have a newsletter that I put out. It's not Normally, I put it out every single week, but I'm in the middle of a new manuscript, which I'm very deep in, and it's actually due in a moment, so my newsletter has been sporadic, but as soon as I turn that in, it'll go back to being weekly. Um, and you can find archives of the newsletter there, and then if you if you like it, you can subscribe. It's totally free. And then there's also a contact form on there, and the contact form is not just for people to contact me to hire me, but also I love hearing from people who have listened to me on podcasts or read the book. I learn a lot from my readers, not just in terms of what are they taking away from my message, but they're often very, you know, more often than not, they're adding um, knowledge to me. You know, they're telling me things that they know or that might fit in with the way I think or different perspectives. And I love that. So don't ever, you know, I think people feel like, oh, I don't want to write because I'd be bothering them. And I, I would consider it harm if someone wanted to contact me and didn't. Um, and then the other place that hopefully people will look is um, there's a foundation uh, that I co-founded. Uh, so it was founded as how I decide. We actually just changed our name to the Alliance for Decision Education. And I hope that people will go check that out because what we're trying to do there is create a movement around decision education. So, um, you know, if we think about all the stuff that we've been talking about, all the stuff that's contained in the books that we've talked about or the ideas that we've talked about on this podcast, this stuff isn't being taught to kids. Um, you know, kids are learning trigonometry, but they're not learning how do you construct a good decision? How do you think about information? How do you figure out what's true and not true? Um, how do you think probabilistically? How do you think about your own habits? None of that is, is in like K through 12 education. And so we're really trying to create a movement and build the field of decision education. And our goal, it's an ambitious one, um, is that, you know, every kid, will get decision education during that crucial time in, in their K through 12 education so that we can teach kids how to, how to be better decision makers and interact with information in, in, a, in a better way. Annie, that's an absolutely beautiful idea. And we will be sure to link all your work, your book, your social media, and of course the foundation in the description below for our listeners to find. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've given so much great content and we can't thank you enough. Oh, well, thank you. This has been a really, really fun conversation.